to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and today's episode is in honor of Palliative Care Month. My guests today are Dr. Lisa Humphrey and Aaron and Rachel Lewis. Dr. Humphrey is a director of the Division of Hospice and Palliative Medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Dr. Humphrey has an undergraduate degree in child psychology from Columbia University and attained her medical degree at Case Western Reserve's University School of Medicine. She then completed her pediatric residency, chief residency, and palliative and hospice medicine fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Humphrey oversees a large palliative and hospice program that provides inpatient consultative care, clinic-based care, and home-based hospice and palliative care services. She is also the program director of the Nationwide Children's Hospital Fellowship in Hospice and Palliative Medicine. Dr. Humphrey works with both regional and national palliative care committees and is an elected member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Executive Committee for its section of hospice and palliative medicine. Rachel Lewis is a co-founder of Keith's Comfort Blankets and Mother to Keith. Rachel works in human resources and has 10 years of professional experience in the areas of healthcare compliance, employee relations, business continuity, and the juvenile justice court system. She graduated from the University of Toledo with a Bachelor of Science in Criminal Justice. Rachel enjoys being with her family, Arthur and Annie, traveling to new cities with Aaron, and finding great restaurants around town that includes a great dessert. Aaron Lewis is the co-founder of Keith's Comfort Blankets and father to Keith. Aaron has spent the last 15 years in corporate compliance and is currently the director of legal and compliance operations for a global medical device company. Aaron earned his MBA from Franklin University and is a proud graduate of the University of Dayton, where he majored in management information systems. In his spare time, he enjoys playing golf, is an avid photographer, and enjoys attending Dayton Flyers basketball games. Aaron and Rachel have two other children, Arthur and Annie, and two dapple dachshunds, Winnie and Rudy. Please join me in welcoming today's guests. Hi, Lisa, Rachel, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining me. I so appreciate your time. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So today's topic is on palliative care and hospice care. And I think it's a, a topic that a lot of people are maybe not familiar with and certainly uncomfortable with. And um, this is um, Palliative Care and Hospice Care Month. So um, we'll, we'll be talking about things that um, hopefully will be really helpful to listeners. So I want to just start out first with um, Dr. Humphrey and just talking a little bit about kind of your pediatric journey and how did you get into the field of palliative and hospital medicine, hospice medicine? Um, uh, I would love to say I have some amazing origin story because back when I was training, I was one of the first in the country. So everyone had this fantastic origin story. And then there was me. 
And I mercifully had fantastic mentors. So I actually had someone who kept tapping me about every six months on the shoulder saying, we've been watching you. We think you'd be really good at this thing called palliative. I thought it was a little odd. Someone was watching me like that. And also, again, who would do palliative medicine for a career? But thank goodness for their tenacity. And I was like, sure, I'll do it. Thinking it might be 10 or 20% of my job. I planned on being a pediatric hospitalist. And sometimes people know you better than yourself in your blind spots. Thank goodness. Uh, and now I do it probably 100, 110% of my day. Okay. Well, you know, sometimes things happen in surprising ways. I've been doing these podcasts now for a couple of years and I love the origin stories, which are really varied. Some people are like, I knew from, you know, the time I could speak that I was going to be a doctor. And then there's people like me that, you know, it was my high school teacher that said, have you ever thought about being a doctor? It was like, oh, that's a great idea. So. <laughs> You know, the the stars align at different points. Right. So Rachel and Erin, I want to welcome you as parents because, you know, the the work we serve is our patients and our family. So I'm really grateful to you both for joining. And I thought we would start with sharing your son's story. Yeah, sure. sure. Um, so our first son, his name is Keith Lewis. Um, he was born in the summer of 2015. And um, we welcomed him into this world. And he was very healthy when he was born. He was the first grandchild on one of our sides. And so he was brought into the world with a lot of joy and happiness. We knew he had a couple things that were a little bit off, um, one, one of those being cerebellar hypoplasia, but we were told it wasn't a big deal. Actually, we were told he won't be a professional athlete, but he'll be okay. And I was like, well, we're not either. either. Yeah. So that's okay. And so Keith lived a very normal life the first three months. Um, and then he started to have issues keeping food down and a lot of vomiting. And so we were admitted to the hospital um, under failure to thrive and had to kind of figure out what was going on. And at that time, after a number of tests, we were told the left side of his heart was thickening and that he would likely die of heart failure. And so that really put us in that seat to have the tough conversations with ourselves, with the hospital, with our physicians, and figure out what was going to happen next. Um, we were told it was likely genetic and that it, his heart couldn't be fixed. A transplant wouldn't fix it because it was genetic and it would just do the same thing to a new heart. And so we really had to exhaust all possibilities and options. And again, think about what was next. So we were given an NJ tube and Keith gained a lot of weight in the hospital for a month and we got to a really good healthy spot and we were sent home. Um, on Thanksgiving day. On Thanksgiving day. Yeah. And we managed the NJ tube just fine. And it, it really gave us some really awesome weeks with Keith. And then in January, um, we had an episode with Keith while he was at daycare where we think maybe it was a seizure, some type of episode. Um, we had to call the ambulance and he was sent to the emergency room at that time and his numbers were way off um, and they did, we decided to intubate him at that time. Um, so we were submitted to the cardiac thoracic ICU at Nationwide Children's Hospital and we were there for another month trying to figure out what what could we do, what was going on with Keith. And with Keith being only five months old at that time, we really had to look at his body and what he was telling us, what the numbers were telling us. We had physicians say, hey, we can chase these numbers all day. We can up the feeds and 
and increased breathing support. Yeah, increased breathing support. We can play all these games, but at the end of the day, we need to really think about what his body's telling us. And so we really had to lean in. I, I say that we got medical degrees very quickly within three, three months because we learned so much and thankful to the hospital staff for walking us through all of that. Um, but ultimately, we did decide to extubate Keith, and we knew he was not going to be able to survive without some of those medical assistance. Um, and he did pass away in February of 2016, right before his six-month birthday. Um, an interesting part about Keith is a year and a half later, we were given um, a formal diagnosis for him. He had a genetic mutation of the MyPEP gene. And that was only found in a handful of other people in the world. A mitochondrial A mitochondrial, mutation. yeah, mutation. And so it helped, but it also solidified that there wasn't anything we would have been able to do or treat to keep him alive here with us. Um, but we were able to use that information to go on and do IVF treatments. Um, we were testing embryos for the same genetic information that we had on Keith. And so now today, thankful to Keith, we have a three-year-old boy and a one-year-old girl. Their names are Arthur and Annie. And they very much know about Keith. Um, we have pictures of him up. We talk about him and we put him in our family pictures in certain ways. So he, Keith is very much still part of our family, even though wow. he's not here physically. Uh, such a hard story. And yet I'm so grateful that you now have two children, but um, how lovely that you still include him. You know, of course, how can you not? I was going to ask you, and maybe Erin, you can speak to this a little bit too. What was that like when you went, you know, this was a, you know, a normal, healthy baby. And suddenly you're being told that he's going to succumb to heart failure. I mean, I would think that the world collapsed, the rug was pulled out from under. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, it was, um, you know, obviously it's is, is very tough to get that news. And, you know, when we, when the Ames team first came in as palliative care team, it was kind of like, why are you guys talking to us? Like, we're not there yet. You know, his, he has a heart condition, but, you know, there's nothing that told us he would not survive, you know, until a six month birthday. You know, I was thinking more like, okay, teenager, young adult type thing. You hear about kids who don't have heart conditions and are playing basketball and fall over and, and pass away that way. You know, I was kind of thinking something more long term ish like that, right? Something we'll monitor. So, you know, it, it, it really, you know, Rachel and I started having conversations very early on, even before we realized like, we would have to be planning a, a, a funeral and a cel you know celebration of life service you know in in a, in a month or two, um, but you know I think having that conversation that thought process really opened us up to conversations late at night sleeping on the hospital floor, like holy cow like if he died like where would we bury him you know how would we have a funeral would we have a celebration of life service what does this mean for you know, our parents and our, and our, and our siblings and our family, you know, we weren't people who were really sharing, you know, didn't share a lot of stuff on Facebook initially. Right. And I could share our whole journey. We weren't very open about it. Then it was something we just kind of kept private to us. Um, so a lot of people didn't even get to meet Keith. You know, there's a lot of, there's few people who have met all three of our children. So that, you know, when we went back, we joked when we went back with their kids at RSV, you know, last year and there was staff, on one of the floors who met Keith and we're like, Hey, you want to meet our other two kids? Like there are very few people in this world who have met all three of our children. So, you know, we really struggled with, you know, just how we, how we deal with that and move on. You know, child death is not something that's talked about in the society. You know, you, 
you know, we always say like you you lose a a spouse, you're a widow, right? There's no term for parents who have lost children, and people don't like to talk about it. So you feel like very much like a black sheep in society. Um, we are comfortable about talking about Keith. People aren't comfortable talking to us about Keith passing away. So we really struggle with that. We struggle with relationships, friends, family. Uh, We have a lot of different stories of just that struggle. And, you know, and Rachel loves to say, you you have to find your tribe. You have to find your tribe who can grow with you and grow through this experience, you know, and obviously we're comfortable talking about him and we love people who, you know, bring him up in conversation and say his name a lot. So it's, it was very, you know, obviously difficult, but something that we just journeyed through together and really kept communication lines open and, you know, try to be very honest with each other, what, what we needed and what we wanted and where we were at that time, which is forever evolving. Now I'm going to have a million questions as we go through this. I'm just, yeah, I think, I don't think most of us are comfortable talking about death at any age. I mean, I know I have, my parents are 90 and 92 and, you know, doing advanced directives. And I mean, you know, at that age, we know that they're going to pass at some point, but it's hard. And when I said to my husband, I think we need to do advanced directives. He's like, why? You know, like somehow that speaking it will make it so. And Lisa, I was going to just ask you, when you are called or maybe you can even tell, how were you called into this situation and how do you present it? Because, and in this case, it was for a a child who was dying, but in a lot of cases, it's not about all that it's going to be an immediate death. So maybe even just talk about what is palliative care, hospice care, what are the myths that we have about that? Sure, sure. And guys, you should correct me if I'm wrong, but honestly, when we met Keith, it was not under this notion that he was going to die, actually. So we were, we came in truly with a palliative mindset. And so uh, those of us who practice it and work with families, we like to state that palliative care is a multidisciplinary team put together for patients and or their families facing a life threatening life-limiting condition. However, cure can be on the horizon for that patient. And yet the journey can be difficult uh, because of symptoms, because of emotional wellness, because of psychological or spiritual stressors. So our job is to work with families, work with patients as a team. We have typically social workers and chaplains and child life specialists, psychologists, physicians, to make a healthcare plan that mitigates those stressors to the best of our ability to try and make the journey a quality that resonates with a family or a patient's North Star. Um, So we very purposely will come in trying to be an open slate, trying not to make assumptions, trying to be decisionally agnostic at all costs because it's not our decision or our journey. Our job is to understand a family's value system and what they're hoping for to gain and what they're hoping to avoid for their child um, in the instance of pediatric palliative care. Hospice, we like to state, is a type of palliative medicine reserved for end-of-life care. And so modern palliative care, we often might see 10 patients, nine of which live for a very long time for potentially cure, um, and one may pass at a certain given period of time. And so when we met Keith, the cardiac intensive care physicians 
thought it would be good for us to meet them because at that point, we actually thought we were going to be journeying together for quite some time while we tried to understand the whys. And um, we all knew a goal was for him to get home and be happy. And those are great marching orders for a palliative care team. Uh, And so that's how we entered the space. And, you know, we really tried at that space just to get to know each other. Our job is to hopefully enter the space with humility and open ears, as my um, son loves to call them, you know, talk less listen more and get to know each other and how we can be helpful. And I think that's really how our journey began. And one of the reasons it's important um, here at Nationwide Children's and a lot of kids' palliative programs that we meet early on like that is we want to share a mental model of Keith looking good and how we could get Keith looking better, right? Um, We wanted to see him on those feeds at home at Thanksgiving. And so that if things change or regoaling needs to occur, we're, we're working together. They trust us a little bit. We know what they are seeking and, and looking for, and we can be most helpful. And so that, that earlier part of the journey is really important to us. It sounds like there's a lot of framing. I loved your term. I almost stopped you. Decisionally agnostic. So you're not coming in with, hi, I'm the physician. I have this plan and this is what we're going to do. I mean... You are listening with, as you said, open ears to what are their goals and their needs and hopes. Yeah. And I think it's really important that um, as a healthcare community, we really see palliative as decisionally agnostic. We, you know, there's this old idea that we come in because we think the right thing to do is to limit interventions or to only come in in that sad space when a, a child is dying. However, we do our job best when we help a family self-actualize what their value system is through a healthcare plan. We do our best if a family needs it to be a megaphone, not the director of the play, but just the backup choir with a megaphone to, to aid if there's communication concerns or we, you know, that sort of thing. So we really lean into the idea of being decisionally agnostic. Because if I go in with an agenda, I'm going to miss so much being said in that in that room, and then I'm not helpful. So for you guys, first of all, probably the fact that palliative care was there and you'll have to tell us what did that mean to you, but in listening to Lisa describe this, how did that fit for you? Yeah, I I will say I definitely agree with a lot of what Lisa said. We felt like they did not have an agenda and that the agenda was up to us to make and talk through and think through. It was a little bit you know, I kind of wrinkled my nose, like, what, why is this team coming to talk to us? Like, we're, Keith is getting better. He's gaining weight. We're talking about going home. Why do we need them along with us in our journey? But it it didn't take long to really connect the dots there and, and understand, you know, we were, we were parents who wanted to know everything. We wanted to have the difficult conversations. We recognize not every family is that way and they put on blinders and, and just want to live in the moment. And that's and, okay. And that's okay. That's and the, and we again found that Lisa and her team, they really did that with us. They, they felt us out. They wanted to know if we wanted to talk about that stuff. So while we, I think initially had a gut reaction of, wait a second, we don't need you. It was like, oh, we do need you because we want the hospital and the physicians to understand what we do want in this situation and what we don't want. For example, we felt very strongly, we didn't want Keith to have a trach. 
And that was important to us. And so that was something that was discovered through our conversations with Lisa and team. And it was absolutely respected throughout the whole process. So it, it is kind of establishing those pieces up front that mean a lot to us as mom and dad. Again, we had to be Keith's voice. He couldn't communicate. So we had to make the best decisions as mom and dad. And, and that team certainly allowed for that. And I don't, I don't think we would have had those conversations without the prompting of of the team. Yeah. Something very, you know, very powerful. I remember a message from one of the the physicians in the palliative team, the Ames team, as they're called, uh, NCH. But um, was you know we're gonna you know pray for the best, but prepare for the worst. You know, so we're we're not giving up hope on on Keith, but you know there is something very serious going on here we don't know what it is all these tests kept coming back negative 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 which are like hey great it's not that but what is it you know um so all these negative test results came back but you know that comment i think really stuck out with me and that allowed us to start those conversations of would you want keith on a trick you know what what would what does what does you know keith's long-term care look like to us what are we okay with what are we not okay with um you know, start talking about the funeral and stuff like that. If this did happen, what and what would we do? You know, so it was those prompting questions of, hey, you know, something serious is going on here. We don't know what it is. We're not saying he's going to die in two weeks, but you know, you guys need, you know, start having these conversations and you know, what does this look like? And th there is something serious going on here. We'll be with you on this journey. Um, but you know, that that kind of opened the door for Rachel and I to start having those really weird, tough conversations that two parents of a three-month-old, you know, really, you know, should not be having. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, as, as a pediatrician, I would bring to it, what would I do? I mean, how could I not be thinking like, if I was in your shoes, this is what I would do, but maybe what I would do wouldn't be what you want. And so Lisa, how do you, how do you bring to it an open mind without I mean, how can you not bring your own feelings? How do you walk that? Because there's this fine line, I think you said it, Erin, between, you know, pray for the best, but prepare for the worst. I mean, how do you do that? So it's not, I mean, just so that there's room for this ambivalence because, you know, you just don't know, right? I think it's a constant intentionality and in practice. I've been doing this for, you know, a long time now. And I, it still has to be something that I'm intentional about. And so we talk a lot as teammates about the baggage that we could accidentally bring into a room. Uh, what triggers us? Um, you know, what are we defining as a good job done as a doctor in that space? And does that, is that, and does that even align with how a parent would define us having done a good job in that space? And so we really try to pause before each doorway and really take a moment to check in how it sounds silly, but I mean, honestly, where's our heart rate? I, you know, are our palms sweatier than usual? Um, you know, do I have a weird voice in my head, you know, being grumpy or being, you know, nervous or something? And, and it sounds silly, but it's really important to really have that because I have phenomenal clinicians I work with at this hospital. Um, you know, and yet I think um, most of us have gone into pediatrics because we love healthy children. We love when there's a singular issue that we can help get a child back to health. And when we cannot do that, it 
you know, the story shouldn't be about us, but if we don't understand that that's actually incredibly emotional for us and what we're bringing into that space, then we're not going to be able to hear what the family needs from us, right? And so we do that with intentionality. I, I will also share one of the power of being a palliative care physician is I am not responsible as defined by anybody in this hospital to fix a child. So I actually don't have that in my job description. So I, we are all sort of released from that stress. And we have a lot of other stressors, right? Like I, I want a family to feel trusted and heard. I, I have a lot of tasks I want to get done, but I can allow those to bubble to the surface. Um, and so it just allows, I think, for a, a certain cognitive malleability when I'm in the room. Wow. As you're talking, I mean, I have images flashing through my head of children that I've cared for and, and lost. And the first one I remember vividly as a resident, and it was a little girl that had leukemia with some crazy white count in the ICU, her blonde, long hair spread out on the pillow. And I had a child that looked like her at home, and I just lost it. And she, passed away very quickly. I don't even think she made it into chemo. And then I also early in my career had a young man, a Scotty, who um, had congenital heart disease and was literally blue and cared for him for years. And the thing that was so amazing about his mom was she expected him to do everything that he could do. There were no limitations like, oh, you can't do that. It was, you can try, you know? And um, I remember at one point, and this was after years, having the conversation about, have you ever thought that you might die with him? And it was so uncomfortable. And then I thought, should I have had this conversation a long time before? I'm sure that his mom had thought about it and I never gave them the opportunity. So I don't know, as parents, what do you, I mean, is it okay for us to talk about death with you? And how do we do that in a way that's helpful? One of my real strong messages, and, and Lisa kind of pointed to it, is you have to be able to read the room. You have to be able to read the parents. Um, you know, obviously, as parents of a very young child, right? You have to be able to read the room. As with Scotty, who's you're able to have the conversation with him, right? You have to be able to read Scotty and know when is that an appropriate time to ask that question. Um, is it ever? Is it early? Is it late? I don't know. One of our really resounding messages is you have to be able to, as a, we do a lot of education with nurses generally, um, you know, you're the people who are in the room the most. So you need to be able to read that family. And I'm sure you, with your experience and certainly Lisa, with your experience, you know, when you walk into a room, certain families who you can have certain conversations with and that relationship building I, I always stress is really important to build that relationship which is the foundation of the relationship that we had with the Ames team early on in November allowed us to have tough conversations about Keith you know with with the Ames team but it's that foundation of the relationship one creating a comfort level for us that we know you know Lisa's coming to us with the best intentions and and her focus is on Keith and allowing us and allowing her to read us and say, I, I know I can ask Aaron and Rachel this. I sell time. Her and I are completely different. Mm -hmm. She's a very strong introvert. I'm an extrovert. Mm -hmm. You know, so you've got to be able to come in and read us. 
be able to know, hey, I can probably, you know, have, you know, joke with Aaron. And, you know, we had a lot of good laughs with the staff, right? And, you know, we're, we're, Rachel's more reserved and, you know, maybe a little more quiet and sitting in the back of the room. I, at night, I'm out giving rounds. You know, I gave rounds one night, you know, night rounds, not morning rounds, but, you know, that's just our personality. So being able to read, read families and read individual families, but reading families as a whole, knowing that Rachel and I are very comfortable with having tough conversations about Keith. You know, that's very important. And it's a very tough skill, I think, to learn. I, there's, no, there's no book you're going to read to teach you that, but it's more. Shoot. I thought you were going to have like a, yeah, it's, here's exactly yeah, I've, what I've, you I've, do. Yeah, I've got a self, self-authored <laughs> book. I'm going to sell today, but no, you know, but that's a very important skill set. And, you know, when Lisa talks about having an open mind walking in, you've got to, you know, have an open mind along with having that relationship with the family, I think then you're really providing the best service to that family, you know, meeting them where they are, maybe where they are that day or that week or that month. Um, but I think that's really valuable. Yeah. I, th- I think for me, I'm someone who appreciated and needed direct communication. So if we were on this journey of Keith's life coming to an end, I probably needed to hear that directly. And I was okay talking about it once someone else acknowledged it. So um, I am not someone that likes to sweep things under the rug or wants to pretend that everything is rainbow and butterflies. And I think the staff probably quickly learned that about me. So for our situation, it was absolutely appropriate to have those conversations and open that door. But I think we we also kind of showed, showed our true colors yeah. too. And we know families who would never have a conversation and accept or say that their child is likely going to die in the next month. Right. And we always say, that's okay. Yeah. That's where they are. That's what they need. They will never give up hope that there's a fix and a solution, even though everybody in the doctor staff, you know, knows this is the end. There, there is nothing else we can do. That family will never come to that decision on their own. And they need to be, you know, told that, and they don't want to have that conversation and that's okay. Right. But you have to, as a physician, you have to know and understand that. Um, so again, it goes back to the relationship building, the communication and all that. So, yeah, I think after doing this podcast, I firmly believe that so much of medicine is, you know, that art of medicine. It's about the relationships that we have with our patients, with our families. I mean, that has to be at the foundation. I mean, it's one thing to know which antibiotic to pick for an ear infection. I mean, that doesn't take a deep and, you know, defining relationship, except if I also know that this family has terrible transportation and no money to pay for it, that's a different conversation. So if I don't know my patients and families, then I don't know, I, you know, like you said, I'm not going to know what they need. Lisa, I'm wondering, is there some language? I guess I'm I'm imagining even asking people, you know, what are your what are your biggest concerns? What are your biggest fears? Are there things that you want to ask that are hard to ask? I mean, what what's the language around how you know, like, are they ready or do they want to talk about death? My spoiler alert is I drive my trainees crazy because they'll ask me that question. And I, some days I'm just like, I don't know. I just sensed it in the room. They hate when I do that. Um, but I think 
a couple tips to think about is, as Aaron alluded to, most families aren't going to page you or ask for a clinic visit because we've been thinking at two in the morning and we've come to the realization on our own that our child is going to live a short life. And we would now like to talk about goals of care. Um, and yet somehow, oddly, a lot of us were trained in an era where we expect families to come with us with that data, make all the decisions on their own, and then we we act them out, right? And, and in the absence of doing that, we, especially since most of us actually are um, uh, death averse, or we have a lot of death anxiety, as we call it, right? Then we don't want to bring it up either. And so we're doing this strange dance and or we start worrying that the family doesn't get it. They're in denial. They keep talking about all this hope. The reality is I'm terrified if a family's not talking about hope. Um, that's demoralization. That's a very dangerous place for a patient or a family to be in. And I'm not scared of them saying that. Um, it doesn't mean they don't get it. I think we have to stop asking families to keep proving that they get it. I think we need to move to a space where we're, again, exploratory, um, have the courage on the hard days. If we get a bad test result, we do need to walk in and say, I have a worry that we have this new piece of information. We need to wrestle with it together today. And then you ask, you know, how, how does that make you feel? What are you worried about when you hear about that? So the worry statements and seeking those out are really important uh, because all humans worry. That doesn't mean I'm asking you to give up. That doesn't, right? That, that means we're, we have to talk about our worries today. So that's a really important one. I think as clinicians, one of the things we tend to ask when we're getting to know a family before we have those harder conversations, we like to try and figure out how people like to receive information. Um, we'll ask things like, if you get a new cell phone, how do you figure it out? Do you just keep fussing around with it? Do you, you, know, do you make your younger kid do it? Do you read all the instructions? We're trying to get out what kind of learner you are if you need to gain new data, right? How should I explain this chemo? How should I explain this surgery? And then also people laugh at me, but I'll actually even say, you know, so tell me when you get difficult or complex news, do you like it straight up? Um, you know, do you like it with a little sugar? Do you like it with sugar, Splenda and Equal all shoved on top? Because, right, I have to meet people where they're at. Because at the end of the day, the most amazing thing that, that this family did for Keith was have the courage to hurt and be sad and and miss him every day. And they put that upon their own shoulders, right? And and they had to get to a space of themselves that they worried that a life for Keith with a trach was going to be too much suffering. So they were ready to suffer on his behalf. And if you if a family's not ready to be there yet, even though my agenda is, oh my gosh, we have to resolve this trach situation or I need them to understand, I'm just forcing something into a space that they're not ready to to work through yet, right? Because understandably, I'm not ready to hurt like that for my child or my mother or my my partner until a certain time happens. I, I'm not sure I articulated that well, but no, no, I'm I'm so I'm thinking about so there's the the decisions that have time to make. Mm -hmm. So the thought about you know the trach question, you had some time. It wasn't like you have to decide right now. What about those decisions that happen in the middle of the night in the Pete's ICUs where it is uh, you have to have those conversations immediately? What's that like, Lisa? To me, and I would love to hear everyone else's opinion, right? But to me, it's um, 
if we don't have data going into that crisis that the family was ready to regole or we have something we can hang the conversation onto. So for example, if I have shared with the ICU that this family is ambivalent to keep poking their child, that that's very traumatizing to them to see. And now we're talking about another round of sepsis and we're talking about another line. It behooves everyone, family and healthcare provider, to go in there and say, I understand that this is something that's a worry to you, right? That's a value statement. And then say, but I have... Mm -hmm. I have to wrestle through something with you tonight, right? And so, it, but what we can't do is say, I cannot believe they want, they're going to want me to treat another sepsis, go in with that preconceived notion, right? I also, at two in the morning, if we haven't had those kind of conversations, it probably is not the right time to have them. They're in crisis mode. They don't, they may not have their heart in their head, meaning the parents talking to each other, their heart in their head. And so, I don't want them to have decisional regret either, right? That's really important for families. And so if we don't have a value statement that we can help shepherd a family through making based on their values, it may not be at the time. So what, yeah, what do you guys think? I mean, imagine, you know, middle of the night, there's a decision to make pretty quickly. How, how do you, what's helpful? What's not? I I think for me, it would be quickly understanding what the short-term and long-term gain is. So if we need to make a quick decision to save his life in the next minute or two, and then talk more about what other options can get us to where we want to be, whether that's comfort, whether that's home, whatever that might be, then I think it's understanding that and, and letting us feel empowered. Something that Nationwide Children's did very well is we always felt empowered. We always felt in control and we got to be mom and dad. And that was really important. While we, of course, needed the medical staff and, and their education and experience, we were the decision makers. And so we trusted very much that we were getting all the information that we needed. We understood the risk and reward of tests, of machines, medications. We understood that because the staff gave that to us so that we were able to make that decision and feel empowered. Yeah, I would go back to the time we exhibited in January, mid middle of January or so. Um, you know, we got his heart um, kind of where his breathing was, you know, as strong as it had been. And we felt we needed to give him, uh, you know, that chance to extubate and, and survive on his own and see what his body did. So we did extubate uh, in the morning. And I think, you know, it, he lasted, you know, 12 or 15 hours or so. Mm -hmm. You know, we're kind of watching him really close. And then he coded. And luckily, a nurse was right there when it happened and saw him turn blue and coded. We were back in the corner of the room, you know, 15 people rushed in doing chest compressions on a five-month-old in the crib. And... The nurse practitioner, Jan, was there at the head of the bed just giving instructions. Like She was just like this incredible, calm leader in that time. You know, the, the crash cart was outside bringing in medicine, and she's just there directing it like, you know, like this amazing, you know, leader. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we knew that, you know, he needed to be intubated again to survive that moment, you know, we weren't prepared to let him go like that at that time. You know, we mm. hadn't had family say goodbye or we hadn't said goodbye. We weren't emotionally ready to let him go at that time. So we, you know, reintubated, you know, no, that, and they told us, you know, if we have to reintubate, you know, he's probably not going to, you know, extubate again successfully. So we kind of knew what that meant at that time, but, you know, that was a very intense uh, moment for us um, where we were huddled in the corner and watching just 
people rush in and take care of him. But, and, and we said, we were comfortable at that point, like, hey, he needs to be intubated so he can survive. And then that, after that moment, started those, you know, really intense conversations and intense planning that, you know, his his body telling us that he can survive on his own. So, but again, we, walking into that moment, we had conversations like, if we have to reintubate again, this probably means, you know, what that means and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we had those conversations, but it was still really, really intense at that moment when he, because it's like, oh, he coded, hit the button, boom, you know, it was, it was crazy. Um, you know, but that, that, when you asked that question, it took me back to that moment of him, him coding. I'm, I'm listening and thinking, that's not how I thought the story was going to go. I thought you were going to tell me that he coded, the question came up, do we intubate them? And that you said, no, we don't want to do that again. That's where I thought it was going to go. So when you said that, I'm like, oh, you needed, you needed to buy some more time. Yeah. And I think that, that with those advanced directives, and sometimes we're asking questions about what would you do in the heat of the moment? And it's not always the same. And, and so that is a hard question. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that, Rachel? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I'll add to that, that same day that he coded, we were actually being transferred to step down. So here we had been in the ICU for a couple of weeks and we're talking about he's getting better. His numbers look great. Um, he's on CPAP. We're going to, we're going to take you to step down. So we had kind of entered this breath of fresh air, if you will. And like, okay, this is what getting better looks like for Keith. And then that came to an abrupt Halt when, when he coded. And so it was that time where it was like, you know, re-intubating for us and for Keith meant pause. We've got to figure something out because we thought we were on this path and now we're on this path and we're clearly staying in the ICU. And what does that mean? And what other tools can we do? What other things can we try to really listen to what's going on? So it's very quick. We, I think there were a lot of things that we were kind of in one world and then in a very quick test result or some medical event, we were in another world and we had to continue to keep our heads on straight and and make the best decisions for, for our family. Literally in one breath. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm imagining you being in the room and Lisa, you probably know this. I mean, in my training, I mean, the families were never in the room during a code and, you know, and maybe all of you can comment on the thinking like, oh, we don't want you to see this, not because we're doing something terrible, but this would be too traumatic for you to see. Um, of course, that's my assumption about what you would want to see. And the other comment I would just have about the story is when a code goes well, whether or not someone passes or not, I, I think of it, it's almost like a ballet, like everybody knows the place they're supposed to be. There's a calmness in terms of people know what they're supposed to do. And so there's kind of a calm head. I mean, it's a horrible event. But when people are prepared for that, it can be an amazing thing. And when it doesn't go well, it's awful. So I don't know, Lisa, maybe I'll start with you. Just, you know, what about our sort of preconceived notions that parents shouldn't see all this, the, the bad stuff? We should keep that from them. You know, I, I apologize. I can't give you articles, but there's been <laughs> actually many, many a study now done, um, probably done, honestly, I think in like the early 2000s that really re refuted that. 
this idea that in the trauma bay and the emergency department, in our ICUs, on the floor, it's actually incredibly important to to have the families there if if that is important to them. Uh, in particular, if the child does not survive, it actually helps with bereavement. That mm. ability for a family to see that a healthcare team tried their very best and we did it with dignity and with intellect and intent, I think is incredibly important uh, as, as parents think back on things. It's akin to when families ask, should my eight-year-old come in today and see their sibling dying? We often encourage yes, if they think that makes sense for their child, for very similar reasons that in the absence of being able to see and all the good work that hopefully the healthcare teams are doing to keep their loved one comfortable, that it can lead to worse stories in children's minds about what happened in that space. And so we we encourage both. Obviously, we're not going to force, but we encourage. And how about for you guys? I mean, you were there. What do you think about, you know, parents in the room? Was that, how was that for you? It was very powerful to watch that team on action. Um, so that was very, very cool to see um, and very you know, it, it was comforting. We were we were scared in the corner, but we were comforted knowing like, wow, they are they've got this under control. Um, you know, like I said, Jan is just crushing it. It was it was just incredible to watch, really, right? Um, and for us, I think you know we were you know we were with Keith at every thing, right? So we I never wanted him to be alone, so we wanted to be there. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I would say that. Yes, I have some trauma attached to that day. That that day for me was worse than the day he passed away because it was that, you know, we're on this path. Wait a second. No, we're on this path. So it was definitely a turning point in his life, in our life. And so I, yeah, it, it's hard to think about that mm-hmm. day, but n- not one part of me would have wanted to leave that room. Yeah. And it, again, we trusted the staff. It was as difficult as it was to watch. Oh my gosh, that staff dropped everything and they were doing everything they could to save Keith in that moment. And I mean, I, I, there's no better way that you can love my child than to save their life in that moment. And so it was very powerful for me. I absolutely would not have wanted to be rushed out, especially if, if I think he would have you know, if he would have passed away in that moment as as mom and that my only child, I would not have wanted to be outside of that room. So we very much wanted and needed to be there. And I would say that event um, really set the course for decisions we made on how we wanted the end of life to go when we did extubate uh, on, on February 2nd. You know, so we we said we do not want him to go out like that with a code. Um, you know, so that that really allowed us to have conversations with at this time, I guess we would say Lisa, the, the true palliative care conversation, right? And what does end of life look like? How do we want, you know, Keith passing when we extubate and we know he's not gonna be able to survive? What do we want in terms of the medicine? And and it was a very peaceful, beautiful, um, non-stress passing because of that code situation. And we said, we don't want that to happen. How do we avoid that? Yeah. So, right. Right. I was thinking about, you know, several kids and families where I sat with them as their children were dying. It's making me tear up thinking about them. 
And there is this incredible magic in being there when a child takes their first breath and perhaps their last. There aren't a lot of professions where you have that kind of intimacy with families and patients and colleagues, really. And you hope that it goes the best that it goes. I mean, we all want that. I mean, I think, I mean, I want that for my, my dad, my parents. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's important to hear that you appreciated that the team was doing everything they could possibly do. They were well-trained. They followed protocol and that that was a comfort to you. I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. You know, we often say, you know, this, we have this like impact statement, right? The, the impact that teams like Lisa and, and obviously, you know, hearing you tell stories about Scotty, right? What kind of impact did Scotty have on you? And in the memory of Scotty and the blonde girl who passed away from cancer, you know, the impact that staff make upon families during these difficult times is incredibly powerful and just creates this true, you know, we have this true love for the staff that cared for mm. Keith and cared for us. It just made an, an immense impact on our life that we will never forget. So I challenge that to the nurses all the time. You know, this is an uncomfortable thing, right? This is probably not why you go into pediatric nursing or pediatric be a physician, right? No with death, because that's just not something that, you know, a lot of people say, I want to go, you know, deal with this. Um, but that impact is incredible. Um, so I, I challenge people all the time to step out of your comfort zone um, and try it, follow people who are good at it, learn from people who are comfortable with it, have experience with it. I, I see it in your stories, you know, with Scotty. And I know, Lisa, you and your colleagues have just really, really powerful experiences dealing with <laughs> pediatric death. Yeah, Lisa, so. I was thinking, I, I don't know if you've had this comment. Um, when I went into pediatrics or even when I say I'm a pediatrician, people go, oh, I could never do that. That's so hard if, when children die. And first of all, the, the good news is that most children don't and survive and are healthy. Many children have disabilities and that has its own set of things. And then there are those kids that, I mean, I, you know, I've been to lots of funerals and have sat with families and, you know, at all different ages and and I, I've told this story before in the podcast. My husband had a very serious illness um, involved three months in trauma care unit. And the, the pinnacles of kindness with the surgeon coming out in the middle of the night, tears in his eyes and saying, I am so sorry that this has been so hard. And I knew they were doing everything. And after that, he he won my trust. And it wasn't because he was a brilliant surgeon, although I think he was, but um, he was willing to be like so vulnerable. Raw, yeah. It's a moment of PTSD. <laughs> it's hard to know. It was like 12 years ago and it's still, whew. but you know, I I think that for a lot of physicians, and I, I don't know how you deal with this either, Lisa, but you know, and my colleagues that are, you know, um, oncologists, you know, the pain of loss. I mean, how do you manage that? How do you not fall apart like I am right now? <laughs> At the risk of sounding cheesy or that I'm placating uh, Rachel and Aaron right now, I promise I say this when parents are not around. Um, 
One, the really practical answer is I'm a doer. And in the absence of having people like us going in there and doing it, then it may not get done. And that's not fair to patients or families. So that's my very practical answer. My more metaphysical, how do I uh, keep my tank full is truly, you said it earlier, when you enter this space and you see a parent and their partner or a grandparent, a caregiver, the the profound strength in their love and the risks they take in their decision-making on either side of a decision, right? To have the courage to wrestle with it um, is, tr- is honestly truly one of the most powerful things. And the fact that I get to see humans, people like Rachel and Aaron, just show the best version of what it means to be a person and be a parent it's it's actually remarkable, and it it that in and of itself fills my cup. Um, and I will assure you that I it's not like I fall apart every time I'm talking. To <laughs> I have cried with families for sure, um, in moments of sadness and joy. Yeah. And I think that there is it's kind of like there's a time and a place. I mean, if I like totally started sobbing, yep, that would sort of steal their thunder, and it wouldn't be helpful. Right. On the right. other hand, I think for people to know that you know we're human too, and that you're child's death, it touches us too. Oh, absolutely. Well, let me ask you just in closing, um, I think you said at the very beginning, Erin, what were the things that are the most helpful and what were some of the things that people said or even say, and they could be professionals or friends and family, because I think the whole thing about death, I think often people don't want to bring it up because they're afraid they're going to hurt you in doing that. So what's helpful and, you know, like, is there something that somebody said, you're like, please don't ever say this. Yeah, uh, we have plenty of those stories. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I always say, you know, we live this every day. Keith is on our minds every day. You know, there is not a day that you're going to walk up to me and say like, hey, um, you know, how you guys doing? I, I, you know, I remember this funny story about Keith and I say, oh, my gosh, I totally forgot I had a child that died. And now I'm really sad. You know, that's not how it works. Um, you know, so we we live this every day. We have connected, um, you know, through you know, these events and, and, and through our charity that we started in his, in his memory. We've connected with a lot of families that have lost children, and it's a very powerful group. Um, it's very comforting to be around other parents who have lost children. And to a T, every one of them says, my biggest fear is that they forget their names, that you know, our families, our society, whatever, that Keith's name is forgotten. Um, you know, for us, so for us, we want to hear his name. We want to, you know, talk about him. We want to honor him and celebrate him. He was very much a part of our family. He very much is still. So, you know, we do not want him to be forgotten. And that every parent that we've talked to in this in this category, you know, feels the same way. So for us, it's, it's you know, talk about them, be willing to step out of your comfort zone and, and approach a family who's lost a child and talk about that child, say their name. That's what we say, say their name. Yeah. That's very important. You know, I don't, you know, maybe want to get into any, you know, bad horror stories of things we've heard, but, you know, you know, one you know, neighbor kind of said, yeah, at least he was only, you know, six months old. So you didn't get a lot of time to really, you know, bond with him or whatever, you know, someone who has you know older kids, right. In their twenties or high schoolers. Um, 
you know, I think people just, you know, oh, you're are generous. You're generous. Don't know what to say. <laughs> we always take the approach. The fact that they're saying something and talking to us about it is a plus. But um, we we just want to talk about. It. We want to know that people are thinking about him too and and miss him and love. Him. Something that was helpful for me in the in that hospital setting, kind of real time, was. You know, we were in an ICU, so Keith was hooked up. He was intubated. He had wires coming out of everywhere, and I didn't know how to take care of him. I knew that I was in the right place, but I didn't know how to be mom. And so I kind of would ask the nurses, like, can I change his diaper? It was just little things that still made me feel like mom when I felt totally out of control. And, you know, I had to look for those things. One of the stories I tell is he had an NJ tube and he was getting feeds one day and the nurse came in with the formula, was getting ready to pour it in. And I said, can I, can I actually pour that into the bag? And she looked at me a little sideways and said, sure, you can pour that. And I said, well, thank you, because this is me feeding my child. This is me nurturing him and giving him what he needs today at this moment. And that was really powerful for me. And, and I know to medical staff, that might seem like something that holds no value. You're, you're putting the bottle or putting the formula into the bag. But for me, that's what I needed in that moment. That helped me breathe easier that I got to be mom in that setting. So I, I challenge some of the nurses and medical staff, like get creative. Don't be afraid. If you see mom and dad, grandma, grandpa on the couch, like eyes wide open, like I don't know what to do encourage them to be part of the care because that that feels good to us to be able to care for our children our grandchildren um so that that helped me thank you yeah lisa any other thoughts on this that you have to share i mean like what do you teach your residents please don't ever say this <laughs> oh right yeah i mean it's it's all along those lines of like what Aaron just shared, you know, I, I often teach, you can't make the sadness go away. There's no magical phrase and it's actually not our job. Don't mess things up, but don't, I mean, you can't take it away. And so I always say, show your validation of Keith by showing up and being present, go into the room, you know, bear witness keep being the best doctor or nurse, right? This idea that all of a sudden you're giving privacy. So you're not giving a call if they're home on hospice or home on palliative, right? You're not, you're not checking in with a family. You're not saying Keith's name or um, Scotty's name, right? Um, it actually does the inverse, right? It's not providing presence. And I often say too, and I think we've been sort of saying this in so many ways is, you know, push your humanity forth. That that surgeon coming out to you with tears in their eyes, right? I mean, that's their humanity. And to me, that's one of the biggest ways we can bear witness and we can have presence and honor the people that we care for. Um, and so, agreed, we should not be sobbing over beds. Uh, and right, um, and yet this notion that, you know, as we, some of us were taught in the nineties and such, I mean, this idea that we're supposed to be all tucked up and not showing our emotions isn't helpful either. Um, so that's a lot of what we talk about. Well, I think when people try and do that, um, they don't sleep, they use substances, yeah. they scream at their spouses and children yeah. because I mean, what do you do with, you can't stuff away your emotions. They're there. And I'm going to, I think, hopefully read the room and, and ask this question. And if you don't want to go there, that's totally fine. But 
so many of these situations tear families apart and couples apart. What kept you so together? Yeah. Uh, that's probably a long, long answer, but I think in short, we meet each other where we are. And I know that Aaron's grief looks and feels different than my grief. And he knows that about me. So one of the jokes I often make is he's the front of the house crier and I'm the back of the house crier for anyone that's ever worked in a restaurant. So when we do things like this, or we speak to people, Aaron is usually very emotional and, um, and that's okay. I'm the one Thank who kind of keeps it together, <laughs> but then I'll get off this podcast and I'll, I'll go cry upstairs by myself. So that's, you know, we, we meet each other where we are. I recognize that Aaron lost his son, that Aaron's parents lost their grandson. And he recognizes that about me. And I, at one point I said to him, I feel guilty because I got to carry Keith for nine months. And I got to connect with him in that way. And so I felt bad that Aaron didn't get to have that connection to Keith. But, you know, of course, he connected with him as soon as he was born. So we just we just meet each other where we are and we love each other through it. And if we have bad days, it's OK. We always have bad days. And sometimes I'll say it's just one of those days. I'm just going to stay in bed today. And he and he loves me where I am. He doesn't try to, he knows the right amount to push me to kind of get me out of that funk. But yeah, there's, there, you know, there's no destination to this grief journey. Yeah. You know, it is a lifelong journey that maybe the hills and valleys get a little bit shallower, um, but there's no destination. There's no end. There's no end of this game. There's no like, oh, we made it. We're good. We're done. Um, so you're, you're kind of ever evolving on how you deal with things and um, how you process and it is a very individual thing. We grieve together and we grieve individually. And, and we've had to acknowledge, you know, she said, I feel like you're doing so much better than me. You're not crying as much, you know, this is a month or two out, you know, you don't cry as much as I do. It's like, well, you know, that's okay. And, you know, as she said, like you have to kind of grieve individually and, and be okay with that. Um, the other thing I say too, is, you know, you know, we've done what we've done because I always say, what would Keith want us to do? You know, we could sit in the basement and eat bonbons for three months and that would have been okay. Right. And we're like, yes, their, their child passed away. They're eating bonbons for months. But, you know, we took the approach of, I kind of live by the approach of what would Keith want me to do? And it's not, you know, sit in the basement and just cry all the time. Let's take action. You make the world a better place and celebrate him and, and, you know, honor his life. So that's kind of the approach that, that we've taken. Um, but it is a, it is a lifelong journey without a, a finish, without an end. Um, you know, so it's just, uh, we just take it kind of day by day. You guys have said so many profound things that just kind of take my breath away. I love the no destination to this grief journey. It's a lifetime event. I mean, I've never thought about it like that. Like we are never going to lose his memory. It will stay with us always. And we're always going to be sad that we didn't get more. I mean, we're going to, we're going to go on with our life, but it's, it's a part of who we are. And your tribe is very lucky to have you in it because I mean, your experience probably, at least for me, it's just, it's so, it's so beautiful the way you are together and can talk about this. And you've held it together way better than me. <laughs> She's a rock. She's a rock. <laughs> I'll, I'll deal with the aftermath, but you guys get the rock. Lisa, anything you have to share lastly with our listeners? Yeah. Um, just, you know, I would say for 
all types of pediatricians or healthcare providers, right? This story is not the unicorn, right? I mean, this this should actually be the goal of all of healthcare, right? That that the partnerships with healthcare and families remain, that, that it's value-driven, that families and decision makers can feel good about themselves despite the hard outcomes of it, right? And I'm not saying that our parents feel good every day, but good in the sense of being able to keep journeying, keep doing, and manage, as they said, this journey that will be with them forever. So I I get a little sad sometimes when people are like, oh, but you're palliative. You, You have something special to say. You did this in some way. Well, perhaps. And yet, right, I I don't think we're that different that this can't be how complex stories go with other families. Well, I mean, and hard is reality. I mean, you know, life, death, I mean, we don't get to pick and choose when. I mean, we're fortunate when it doesn't happen right now and we have more time, but I think it reminds you that, you know, each moment is precious and important. And I am really grateful that we have this conversation. I'm not sure that I knew how it was going to go. Um, you know, and I could not have imagined it to be better than the things that you shared. Honestly, there are just so many pearls, things that you said are so profound. So thank you for that. I will include in the show notes links to helpful things that you guys have found. So um, Lisa, I'll ask you to put some things, but for parents or people who are grieving a child, do you guys have a couple of things that you'd recommend? Um, We had one that kind of fizzled out a little bit, but we could go back and look at some of those resources. I I think for us, primarily, it's still staying connected to Nationwide Children's Hospital, and they have a lot of great services and and people to talk to. So they continue to keep Keith's legacy alive um, through events around holidays and uh, Mother's Day and things like that. So I think it's it's finding that local source for you um, and, and getting connected with them. I don't know if I'm allowed to call out a particular website, um, so you can... Absolutely. In fact, the American Academy of Peds, um, in our section of hospice and palliative medicine, one, we have resources for healthcare providers that I can get you links to. But we also partner with uh, a group called Courageous Parent Network. And it's a website and it's for families and it's actually now for healthcare providers. And it actually wrestles with a lot of this stuff, both in terms of how do families make decisions, how do they gain information um, and different people's journeys. And what's really nice about it is that parents and families and decision makers can do it at their pace and then in in their own um, privacy if that's how they process through things. And it's very video-based. Uh, and so it's it's been really just a remarkable um, resource. that I would encourage people to take a look at. I'll make sure that I put those in the show notes. Well, thank you for doing this podcast with me. I mean, it is just has enriched my day and I am very grateful to you guys being so vulnerable. I mean, this is a powerful story. So um, again, thank you so much. And um, thank you for Keith's life and the memory of his life. So Um, Thank you for giving us a voice. Yeah, we appreciate you talking about this topic. Yeah, and thank you, Lisa, for the work you do. All right. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. I want to give an enormous thank you to Dr. Humphrey and Aaron and Rachel Lewis. Their contributions today were just so powerful, and I am so grateful. So here are my takeaways. Number one. 
There is no term for parents who have lost a child, not widow or widower, and many friends and family don't know how to support parents in their grief. Number two, the Palliative Mindset is a multidisciplinary team for families and patients facing a life-threatening or life-shortening condition. The patient may survive but may endure a long and challenging condition. Number three, hospice is end-of-life care and supporting a family and patient in the journey. Number four, the Palliative Hospice Clinician is decisionally agnostic. In other words, they enter the space with humility and open ears. What would the family or patient hope to gain or hope to avoid? And to create a plan that mitigates a tough journey with the family and patient using them as the North Star. Number five, the family may move quickly from the palliative space to hospice. They wanted a different conversation. And for the clinicians and staff, they'll need to walk the tough line between Pray for the best, but prepare for the worst. Number six, for the clinician, Dr. Humphrey enters with a literal pause at the door for self-check-in and with an awareness of her own baggage and gearing up for a good job done personally and for the family. I think that this is good advice for any of us as we enter a patient room, putting them and their needs at the forefront of what we do. Number seven, the clinician sets aside the old idea that we know what to do and what is best and instead allows the family to self-actualize. There is no agenda except for the family agenda. Number eight, do we talk or ask directly about death with families and patients? This was a question I had. This is the delicate art of medicine with Aaron and Rachel's advice to read the room and understand the parent styles. Dr. Humphrey added how she likes to kind of phrase things and says to families sometimes, how do you like to receive information? Do you like it straight up? Do you want it a little sugar-coated or over-the-top sweet? And then follow their lead. Number nine, she uses the language, I have some information and I need to wrestle together with you about what to do next. Have the courage to suffer on behalf of the child and family and to hurt and be sad. Number 10, allow parents to offer care no matter how small. And Rachel told beautifully about how she asked the nurse if she could pour the feeding into the NJ bag. This meant a lot to her and who knew something so tiny would be so powerful that she could remember it years later. Number 11, Allow parents to be the decision makers while you stand by in respect of their profound love for their child. Number 12, allow parents to be present for a code. They see that everything was done with dignity, competence, and kindness, and that is profoundly comforting. Number 13, a lost child will forever be on the parent's mind. Rachel and Aaron's advice, say their name. Say the child's name. Parents want to talk about their child. Number 14, and this to me is the most powerful statement, there is no destination to this grief journey. It is a lifetime and ever-evolving. And finally, number 15, clinicians get creative. You can't make the sadness go away, but you can show up, bear witness, and provide presence. 
push your humanity forth. Thank you so much for listening. I know that these are difficult conversations, but they're sometimes the most intimate ones that we have. And we are in such a privileged position to spend these critical moments and hours with our families and our patients. And how we approach that stays with them for a lifetime. I'll keep you all in my thoughts and I wish you a very good day and look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.